The Bible's teaching about gender roles is seen by many in our culture as either outdated or outright demeaning. Drawing distinctions between men and women offends many people. However, Scripture points to these gender distinctions as part of God's good design. Welcome to the Radical with David Platt podcast, the latest sermons from teacher, author, and pastor David Platt delivered weekly. And as always, you can find thousands of more gospel-centered, nations-minded resources at Radical.net. Well, in today's episode of the podcast, in a new message from 1 Corinthians chapter 11, David Platt helps us see what it means for a husband to be the head of his wife. This kind of God-given leadership should mirror the self-sacrificial leadership that Jesus exercises over his church. And this passage today is going to force us to consider which aspects of the Bible's teaching apply only to a particular time and place rather than to all people in all times and in all places. Ultimately, we can trust God's design for men and women in the church because it is for our good and his glory. So with that, let's turn to Pastor David with a sermon titled Men and Women in the Church, Part 2, from 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 10 through 16. Well, if you have a Bible, and I hope you or somebody around you does that you can look on with, let me invite you to open with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Feel free to use table of contents if you need to, 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And while you're turning, I want to welcome those of you specifically in Prince William in Montgomery County and Loudoun, others from Arlington, as well as others online who we would love to have you join us together physically as soon as you are able at one of our locations. It is so good to be together, to sing together in person. Now, if you were here last week, you know why it's critical to have a Bible and for us to gather together every week to open it and read it and study it and understand it. And not just every week together, but to do the same thing every day in your life and to share it with others, which hopefully many of us did this week because this is the Word of God and our lives and others' lives hinge both now and for eternity on hearing and believing and obeying this Word. So if you missed last week, I would encourage you to go back and listen to that message. Number one, because I hope it will be helpful for you in understanding the Bible as a whole, whether you're new to church or whether you've grown up in church. And two, because last week is key, even if you listen to it later, to understanding the passage we're studying today. So today is part two of two on men and women in the church based on 1 Corinthians 11, 2 through 16. So just as a quick review of last week, after we talked about the authority of God's Word in our lives, for our lives, we saw two principles for understanding God's Word. I'll put them up here on the screen. One was the principle of history, how God reveals biblical truth in specific historical and cultural contexts, which means that in any passage we need to ask two questions. One, what are the timeless truths that God reveals in this text, which never change over time? And then, are there any temporary applications of those truths in this text, which can change over time? So that's the principle of history, and then the principle of harmony, how we interpret each scripture in light of all scripture, especially when we come to a passage in the Bible like 1 Corinthians 11, 2-16, that's maybe hard to understand or feels inconsistent, maybe even feels like a contradiction. We need to explore what the rest of the Bible teaches, knowing that God doesn't contradict himself in his word. So with these two principles, we come back to what Bible scholars have called one of the most difficult and controversial passages in the Bible. So we're going to read it together, remembering so this was a real guy named Paul writing under the inspiration of God's spirit, so God's speaking through Paul to a real church in a real city called Corinth in the first century, which means what we're about to read contains timeless truths from God applied to a specific historical and cultural context. So with that set up, follow along with me in God's Word, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 2. Now I commend you 
because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. For a man not, ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God. But woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head, because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman, and all things are from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory, for her hair is given to her for a covering. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. Okay, I want to pray in light of what we've just read. God, we are so thankful for your word. And we pray that just as you inspired these words by your spirit 2,000 years ago, we ask you to illuminate our minds by your spirit today. In this gathering right now, it is such an awesome thought that we are meeting with you right now that you are speaking to us right now. So we humble ourselves before you. We put aside our thoughts, and we pray that you would help us to understand your truth and to live according to it in our day, that we might experience life to the full in you. And God, I pray for people who are here who don't know you personally right now, that today would be the day when they enter into a relationship with you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. So there are probably about a hundred different questions we could ask and explore in this text, and it would take about that many hours to do so. Needless to say, we're not going to be here a hundred hours, and we're not going to be able to cover all of those questions. So take verse 10, for example. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head, because of the angels. Like that phrase, because of the angels, that alone has generated so much discussion among biblical scholars, and it seems like everybody understands it differently. So I'm not going to presume today to come on the scene, answer that in a couple minutes, and then move on to another question, just like it, another and another. So instead of spending hours together studying, exploring different questions of interpretations, what I want to do, having done that, those hours of study and exploration myself, is I want to simplify this passage as much as possible for you. And I want to show you two significant, basic, timeless truths in verse 3 that form the foundation for the rest of this passage. Because once you see these two truths, and I'll show you how they're reiterated all throughout this passage, once you see these two truths in, in that verse, I think the big picture will make a lot more sense. Both in how these truths apply to Christians who are reading this for the first time in first century Corinth, and how these truths apply to our lives today, which is where we're going to land with what we just read, what is God saying to us in a way that affects our lives today, this week? I'll go ahead and warn you, these two truths go totally against the grain of our culture today. And against the grain of the way many, if not most of us, think. Which is why we said last week, and we spent all the time we did 
like we did last week, because the fundamental question we need to answer before we even try to understand a passage like this is, do we trust God and his word with our lives? Or do we put our thoughts above God's word? How you answer that question determines how you live and what your life looks like for eternity. So here are these two truths, and I'm gonna phrase them both intentionally to show you in this text what is truth from God for all people of all time, first century, 21st century, anytime, any place. Here they are, truth number one. God calls all people throughout all time to affirm the equal dignity of women and men. God calls all people throughout all time to affirm the inherent equal dignity, value, worth of women and men. God makes clear that women are not inferior to men. And men are not inferior to women, which means that if you in your life have ever felt unworthy or less valued or less dignified or less significant because you are a woman or because you're a man, that did not come from God. Because God gives equal dignity, worth, and value to both women and men. And I should add, though it's not the specific focus of this text, but in light of Juneteenth this coming week, God calls all people throughout all time to affirm the equal dignity of women and men regardless of the color of your skin. Which means that if, if you have ever felt unworthy or less valued or less dignified because of the color of your skin, that also did not come from God. So let me show you this, particularly as it relates to women and men in verse three. So the Bible says, I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Now you might read that and wonder, doesn't that verse, along with other language in this passage, teach that a husband is superior to his wife? And the answer to that question in this passage and all over the Bible is categorically no. Let me show it to you. So the key word in this passage is head. You see it three times. The head of every man is Christ. The head of a wife is her husband. The head of Christ is God. So does head signify superior worth here? No. Well, let's, good answer. Let's look at the three times. I love it. I love a good rhetorical question with a clear answer. Let's look at, and it'd be super awkward if I was answering it differently, but... But the Bible's not, so thankfully we're not going there. So let's look at the three times it's used. So let's, let's see, what is God's word saying here? So the first time it says the head of every man is Christ. So could head signify superior worth here? It seems like it could. Jesus is worthy of worship in a way that no other man is. So maybe head does signify worth, but let's keep going. Second phrase is the head of a wife is her husband. So could head signify superior worth there based on comparison with the first phrase? Maybe, but then let's go to the third phrase, which says that the head of Christ is God. And as soon as we read that phrase, we realize head is definitely not talking about superiority because Jesus Christ, God the Son, possesses equal dignity and divinity with God the Father. And this is a whole other mystery we could spend hours talking about today. But this phrase in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 3, is talking about two persons in the Trinity, God the Father and God the Son, who along with God the Spirit are fully God and are equally worthy and dignified. So clearly, head does not mean superior worth, which means that this passage is not teaching that a wife is inferior to her husband or a husband is superior to his wife. This passage actually guards against that by saying later in verse 11, nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man nor man of woman. 
For as woman was made from man, so man is now born of woman. All things are from God. This is a picture of mutual dependence and dignity, which then brings us to that principle of harmony. Remember, we interpret each scripture in light of all scripture. So does what we're seeing here when it comes to mutual dignity in 1 Corinthians 11 square with the rest of the Bible? And the answer to that question is absolutely it does. From the very beginning of the Bible, I'll put it up here on the screen, in the very first chapter of God's Word, Genesis 1.27 says, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Male and female, both created in the image of God. Men and women alike, equally created, like God, not divine, but with the dignity of God's image upon each one of our lives, all of us with moral and intellectual and relational capacities to speak and work and love in ways that resemble our creator, God. And this dignity for both women and men is affirmed all throughout the rest of the Bible, most notably in the ministry of Jesus, who specifically dignified women in ways that were extremely countercultural in his day, all the way to Paul, who's writing 1 Corinthians 11, and who repeatedly dignified women in his writings and his ministries. So you put it all together, it's pretty clear. God calls all people throughout all time to affirm the equal dignity of women and men. That's our first timeless truth. But how are we to understand then all this language like we see in verse 7 about man being the image and glory of God and woman being the glory of man? Or verse 9, woman being created for man? And that leads us back to verse 3 and our second timeless truth in this text. Number 2, God calls all people throughout all all time to celebrate the unique distinctions between women and men. In this passage, God is calling us in any time and any place to celebrate the unique distinctions between women and men. In a variety of ways, I want to show you three ways in just this passage that God calls us to do this, to celebrate unique distinctions between women and men. So follow this. First, God calls all people throughout all time to celebrate his distinct design of our bodies. We celebrate God's distinct design of our bodies. God has physically designed women and men differently in a way that we should celebrate not negate. And we need to hear this word in a historical and cultural context today where we, adults and children alike, are actively encouraged to question or deny God's good and distinct design of our bodies as male or female. We walked through a whole series on this a couple of months ago. I would encourage you to go back and listen to that. We created a whole page of resources at mclanebible.org slash sexuality for you to have amidst the sea of cultural confusion around us. Even here in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, you look down at verse 14, the Bible talks about what nature itself teaches us about what it means to be a man or a woman. So every man and woman, male and female today, God says in his word that he has formed and crafted your body personally and wonderfully. God loves you and God loves your body. We saw this in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. God is for your body. God desires the earthly and eternal good of your body. So trust God and his word, not this confused and broken world, and not even yourself. Trust the God who formed you in the first place and who loves you so much. And together we celebrate the reality. Praise God, we are not all men. I hear, hear a variety of amens to that, in a particular tone of voice even. 
And praise God, we are not all women and don't necessarily amen. But yes, we amen this because we are all, we are men and women with physical bodies uniquely and wonderfully designed by God from the very beginning of creation. It's part of the beauty of our creator's work. Men and women made in the image of God. We celebrate that. And then, so second, see in this text how God calls us to celebrate God's distinct design for marriage. So now come back to verse 3, where we've now seen, okay, head is not talking about a difference in dignity or value. So what is it talking about? And the answer seems to be that head is talking about relationship with and to one another. Let's look at it. Again, we, we could spend time talking through Scripture about how man relates to Christ as head. Or how in his humanity, Christ the Son of God relates to God the Father as head. Again, as we've already seen, in a way that does not undermine his dignity or worth. But let's just hone in on the phrase, in the middle, the head of a wife is her husband. What does that mean? And thankfully, we have a whole other passage in the Bible, also written by Paul under the inspiration of God's Spirit, that tells us exactly what this means. So remember, we interpret each scripture in light of all scripture. So if you have a Bible, hold your place here in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and take a right and go three books past 2 Corinthians, you'll come to Galatians, and then you'll come to Ephesians. Go with me to Ephesians chapter 5, verse 22. Ephesians 5, 22. In this letter to the Christians at Ephesus, Paul uses the exact same language that he's using here in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Again, under the inspiration of the exact same Holy Spirit, we read these words from God through Paul, Ephesians 5, 22. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. So let's stop there and go back and circle this word that we see twice, that we also see in 1 Corinthians 11.3. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. Now, we've walked through this passage before. Mike preached on a similar passage in 1 Peter chapter 3 at the end of last year. So we'll just summarize what we've seen many other times. This is the picture that God in his word paints of marriage. So according to God, for the husband to be the head of the wife means that a husband lovingly sacrifices his life to lead his wife for her good. That's what it means for the husband to be the head in marriage. It means for husbands to love their wives. How? As Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. That is quite a statement. The Bible says, husbands, look at Jesus on the cross and love your wife like that. What does it mean to be the head? In your marriage, it means you get to lay down your life for your wife. And then, this passage says, wives submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. So also wives should submit and everything to their husbands. So for a husband to be the head in marriage means that a wife respectfully submits to her husband's loving leadership. And I use the language here very intentionally, respectfully, because that's the word God uses specifically later in this passage. In verse 33, if you look down, it says, let the wife see that she respects her husband as the husband loves his wife. And I use the word submits because that's the word we see twice in this passage. And I so wish we had more time to camp out here because I know many of you in your minds may be going in all kinds of different directions, particularly if you've never heard this before, and you're wondering if this picture of leadership and submission is unhealthy or demeaning or oppressive or abusive 
or misogynistic or any number of other things based on what this sounds like or how you've seen a text like this used. But I just want you to, to know that if any of those words, if any of those pictures are in your mind right now, that is not at all what God is saying. Like, look at the comparison here. The relationship between a husband as head of his wife is comparable to Christ as head of the church, his followers. And mark it down. Jesus does not oppress his people. He does not abuse them. He does not demean or devalue them. Jesus lifts them up. Jesus' leadership of his church as head is for their good. It's perfectly for their good. Now, obviously, no husband is perfect like Jesus, but God's design is good. It's very good. I've always put it this way. I've never met a wife who didn't want to respectfully submit to a husband who was laying down his life every day to lovingly and sacrificially lead and serve her, support her, and help her to thrive for her good. So any problems or abuses that arise here are because of husbands and or wives going outside of God's good, distinct design for marriage. The problem is not with God's design. And along these lines, this is why we want to encourage every single person in this church to be in a group because every marriage struggles and we all need help to love like this. We all, all want to help each other, especially when a spouse is not demonstrating God's good design for marriage. And by the way, we know this is not just a picture for people back in the first century Things are different, kind of progressed now in the 21st century because further down in this passage, you look down at verse 31, God's word says, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself. Let the wife see that she respects her husband. Did you catch that? Ephesians 5 is quoting from where? from all the way back in the beginning of the Bible, second chapter, Genesis chapter two, verse 24, where we see marriage first instituted, not just in the Bible, but in the world. And in the beginning, the Bible was teaching that God has distinctly designed a man to hold fast to his wife as a picture of Christ and the church. In other words, this picture of loving, sacrificial headship and glad, respectful submission in marriage is timeless. God designed marriage from the very beginning of time to be a picture of Jesus' loving, sacrificial headship of his bride, his church, which gives otherworldly weight to marriage. Marriage is not just about a man and a woman being in love with one another. Yes, that, and that's awesome. Yet in a much greater way, marriage is a picture on the landscape of human history that shouts Jesus loves his people so much that he lays down his life for them. And God has designed a picture in our relationships to make that clear to the world. What an amazing gospel reality at the heart of marriage, which now, so it's so interesting, now you come back to 1 Corinthians chapter 11 then, because Paul does the same thing here. He goes all the way back to creation, Genesis chapter 2. He talks about how man was made by God, then woman. He's giving a brief overview of how God uniquely and wonderfully designed man and woman as a complement to man, like man, but different from man. God brought them together in marriage. In other words, he's celebrating the same thing we just read in Ephesians chapter 5. These different passages in God's word are speaking together here. But the problem in 1 Corinthians 11 is that these distinctions between men and women, specifically between husbands and wives, were not being celebrated by the church at Corinth in that specific and cultural context. So this is where we start to see the temporary application in that day of timeless truth. So based on this truth that all people in all times should celebrate 
unique distinctions between men and women and God's unique design for marriage, verses 4 and 5 say, every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head. But every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. Now, we don't know all the historical and cultural reasons why this was the case, but clearly in that day, if a man covered his head when he was praying or prophesying, he would be dishonoring his head, who we've already seen in verse 3, is Christ. And you keep going, it's clear that in this historical cultural context, a wife who prayed or prophesied with her head uncovered would be showing dishonor to her head, who we've already seen in verse 3, specifically is her husband. We're also seeing down here that it would be a disgrace. It would be a disgrace in that historical, cultural context for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head. And we could spend a lot more time talking about why that might be the case in that culture, including how that relates to nature, like we see in verse 14. But the point is, in that historical, cultural context, a man who wore long hair would be depicting himself as a woman. And a woman who cut off her hair or shaved her head would be depicting herself as a man. And the problem was, so follow this, these Corinthian Christians were acting like these gender distinctions didn't exist to the point of even depicting themselves as the opposite gender. In other words, in that historical cultural context, they were minimizing God's distinct design of their bodies as men and women, and they were throwing aside God's distinct design for marriage. Specifically, women were praying and prophesying in a way that communicated in that culture, I do not honor my husband. And I keep emphasizing in that historical cultural context because head covering seems to be a matter of temporary application, not timeless truth, in part because we don't see other places in God's word where God commands women to cover their head whenever they pray or prophesy. And the context here seems to be pretty clearly focused on the timeless truth of God's distinct design of males and females and husbands and wives and marriage from the beginning of creation, not whether covering your head uh, was timeless in the same way. This is why when Eliza, our director of counseling and care, led us in prayer earlier here at Tyson's, her head was not covered. Because no one was thinking, she's trying to act like a man, or she's dishonoring her husband. Yet even as I say that, I do want to give a caveat. Because there are people today, churches today, in some places here, even more around the world, where Christian women cover their heads in worship, or when they pray or speak. And while we're saying that was a temporary application of a timeless truth, that it doesn't seem as commanded of us today and every time and every culture as the church, I think it's really important that we don't disparage in any way those who keep that practice, assuming they are doing so because they want to obey God's word and celebrate this distinction. So even if we might not say that it's necessary today in our context, we honor those who might do this in different places around the world out of a desire to glorify God through his word. And really, there's a sense in which we should learn from them. This text should drive us all to ask, how can we make sure in our context that we're celebrating God's distinct design of men and women and of husbands and wives and marriage in everything we do, especially when we gather for worship? But before we ask that question and land this plane on how this applies to our lives, I want to point out one other way we celebrate the unique distinctions between men and women based on this passage. This will actually set the stage for what we're going to see in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 through 14. So God in his word calls all people throughout all time to celebrate his distinct design for our bodies, his distinct design for marriage, and third, to celebrate God's distinct design for the church. We celebrate God's distinct design for the church. Can I just point out the obvious here in 1 Corinthians 11? According to this passage, women are praying and prophesying when the church gathers together. In other words, women are playing a significant part in God's design for his church. 
And that may seem obvious, but I want to emphasize it here because passages like this, whether intentionally or unintentionally, have been used in the history of the church to minimize the role of women in the church. And we're going to see this all over 1 Corinthians 12 through 14, but let's make sure it's clear among us that God gifts every woman and man for the building up of his church. That we must not use a passage like this to make women feel less than or inferior, less valuable or not as important in the life and specifically the leadership of the church. I don't have time to go into all the ways this is practically played out, but suffice to say that would be a misuse of this text. Because God has given every single woman and man unique supernatural gifts from his spirit for the building up of his church. And it is dishonoring to God and to women to limit those gifts in any way that goes against God's design. And when we look at God's design for his church, there's only one position in the church that God specifically designates for biblically qualified men. And that position is elder, pastor, overseer. I put all three of those terms there because the Bible uses them interchangeably to refer to the same position in the church. And I wish I had time to show you this all over the Bible today. I've taught on this before on Sundays. I just did a class this spring on 12 traits of a biblical church where I taught on this one week. This church has taught on this timeless truth for over 60 years that God has appointed. And I want to emphasize here, biblically qualified Men, meaning not every man is called by God to serve as elder, pastor, overseer. You look in passages like Acts 20 or 1 Timothy chapter 3, you see that it's men with certain spiritual gifts of teaching and leadership, among other gifts, who shepherd the church, which means there are many men who are following Jesus with all their heart, who have different spiritual gifts, who don't serve as elders, pastors, overseers. And they're certainly not less than either. And this is not ultimately what 1 Corinthians 11 is about. But the reason I mention it here is twofold. One, I mention it because June is the time that we set aside as a church for us to affirm any new potential elders among us And I use that term elder really specifically because, so the way our church is structured, we have a small group of elders, a board of elders, the majority of whom are not on staff. I'm actually the only current staff elder. And biblically qualified elders together oversee the church according to God's word. They oversee big picture items like our church's vision or our church's budget according to our church's constitution. But obviously, a small group like that is nowhere near sufficient to personally shepherd and care for the thousands of people who are a part of our church family, which is why we have multiple pastors at every location across our church family, some of whom are on staff, many at various locations who are not on staff. And our aim in the days ahead, part of what we've been working on a ton this last year, is making a way to raise up multitudes more biblically qualified pastors. Some on staff, but many not on staff, who are working together to shepherd this body. We want every single member of this church to be known and cared for and prayed for and encouraged by a pastor. And for a church our size across all our locations, that means we need a lot of pastors. More on that in the days to come. But as part of this picture, we have the opportunity at our congregational meeting this month, the last Wednesday of this month, June 30th, to affirm three new elders. So elders who are not on staff serve on a term basis, and two elders are rotating off. Over recent years, a couple of elders have moved out of state. One rotated off due to family health challenges. We've been walking together through an in-depth process to nominate three new elders. So starting today, you can go to mclanebible.org slash elder nominees. You can get to know a little bit about these brothers. If you don't already know them, I'll give you a little preview of what that page looks like. This, uh, so here's Chuck Hollingsworth, and then you'll see Ken Tucker, and then you will see Jim Burris. And I cannot speak highly enough about all three of these men. So the process that's led to this point, they were all nominated by you as members in the church. They were then interviewed by a, a 
a group, a committee of men and women from across the church who then unanimously recommended them to the elders, and the elders are now unanimously recommending them to the church for affirmation. We've spent many, many hours with these men. They love Jesus. They love this church. With that said, if you have any specific concerns with the biblical qualifications of any of these three brothers, then there's a place here on this website where you can let us know that each of these brothers will be at different locations at different times over the next three weeks. And then I want to invite as many of you as can to be a part of that special night, June 30th, for these brothers and for our church. So again, that's elder nominees, mcclainbible.org slash elder nominees. So that's one reason I just mentioned this in particular. But the other reason I mentioned this in our study of 1 Corinthians 11 and men and women in the church is because we must be very careful to never, ever, ever let affirming elders rightly according to God's word lead us to not also affirm women and men who are not serving as elders, who are leading and serving in all kinds of other significant roles in the church rightly according to God's word. And specifically, I praise God for women who have led significantly in the history of NBC who are leading right now in our church family in significant, prominent ways. I think about our director of church groups, director of counseling and care. Think about women leading worship, leading age group ministries, women leading and building up this body in some of the most critical ministries of our church. We want to cultivate a culture that never minimizes or devalues, but always affirms and celebrates women and men thriving according to God's good design for our lives and his church, knowing that. So follow this. We worship and serve together in God's family as siblings, not as subordinates. We are brothers and sisters in Christ. We're sons and daughters of God. We're co-heirs of a kingdom. We're co-laborers on a mission. We love one another like family, and we serve together as brothers and sisters for the spread of our Father's love in this world. So we want to celebrate God's distinct design for the church. These are, these are the timeless truths of 1 Corinthians 11. As followers of Jesus, we worship and serve, we pray and we prophesy, which we'll talk about more about what that means when we get to 1 Corinthians 14. We love and we lead with equal dignity as women and men in the image of God while celebrating the unique and wonderful distinctions between women and men, specifically God's distinct design of our bodies, for marriage, and for the church. So practically, then, what does all that mean? Like how? Can you apply this timeless truth from God in your life today, this week? Let me just list some of the ways. You can start here. Honor women and men with equal dignity in all that you do. Make sure that you are not devaluing, demeaning, discrediting, or discounting the dignity of women or men in any way, in your thoughts, in your actions, your words, in your home, at your work, and especially in the church, knowing that the church has historically and sadly devalued, discredited, and even demeaned women, how the church has far too often not been a place where women's gifts are honored or even noticed. Let us honor women and men with equal dignity in all that we do. That's from God. Then on a more personal level, thank God for your gender. Even if you sometimes struggle with or question God's design of your body as an act of trust in God, thank him for making you male or female. And glorify God fully through your gender. Consider how to most glorify God fully as a woman or as a man according to his word. In this time and place in which he's put us today. And for those who are married, clearly God is saying, 
to you today. Husbands, love your wife. Husbands, how can you better lay down your life to love your wife? That's clearly what God is calling you to today in this word. And wives, honor your husband. Right? These words from God to husbands and wives straight from Ephesians 5 and 1 Corinthians 11. And then as a church, affirm biblically qualified elders. Put June 30th down on your calendar as a specific way to put timeless truth into practice. And use your gifts to fully build up the church. Like if you are a follower of Jesus and you are not connected to the church in ways that you are using your gifts for the encouragement of others in their faith, like get connected in that way. I want to help you online at all of our locations to do that. And if you're not serving in the church, get connected in that way. You matter. Again, we're going to see this more in 1 Corinthians 12. You have been supernaturally gifted by the Spirit of God for the building up of a church. And so you're missing out on God's design for your life if that's not happening in your life. And I would add, this is for everyone, young and old, so including students, you have supernatural gifts for the building up of the church. So use them. And then, let me close with this. Maybe the main takeaway from today is simply to trust Jesus to make you the woman or man God has designed you to be. And some of you have never come to the point where you have trusted Jesus with your life. And I want to encourage you today, the message of the Bible is that God has made you and me and all of us. And we are all separated from God because of ways we have sinned against God. And the only way we can be forgiven of our sin and restored to relationship with God is by trusting in Jesus, who died on the cross for sinners and rose from the dead so that we might have life to the full forever with God. So I invite you, put your trust in Jesus today if you have never done that. And when you do, and for all who have, and let's trust him. Let's ask him every single day to make us more and more and more the men or women whom God has distinctly and wonderfully designed you and me to be. Let's pray. As you bow your heads and close your eyes, I just... I want to invite anyone who's never put your trust in Jesus with your life just to pray right now in your heart to God and to say, God, today is the day and I want to be restored to relationship with you. I know I've sinned against you, but I believe that Jesus died on the cross for my sin. He rose from the grave. And today I put my trust in Jesus for life now and life forever. Today I trust you to make me as the man or woman I am into who you created me to be. Can we just all pray that together? God, please make us the men and women you have created us to be. We praise you for how you have fearfully and wonderfully, beautifully and uniquely formed each one of us. God, it's awesome thought that we are made in your image. So with that kind of dignity that you have invested in us, we say to you, we want to experience life to the full as the men and women you've created us to be. So help us Help us, we pray, to honor one another fully as men and women created in your image. And God, we pray that you'd help us to celebrate these unique and wonderful distinctions in our lives, in the way you've designed our bodies, in the way you've designed marriage. God, we pray for marriages that look like Ephesians 5.
that you'd help us, help us when our marriages don't look like Ephesians 5. And God, we pray for this church family. We pray that women and men would thrive in every way you've created and gifted us to thrive. There would be the full complement of men and women, sons and daughters, brothers and sisters serving you together, glorifying you together with the graced gifts you have given to us. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you heard about the upcoming Radical Intensive? Well, it's a two-day event for lead pastors and their teams to encourage and equip you to lead your church to make disciples of all nations. And the next Radical Intensive is coming up in September. That's September 27th and 28th of this year at McLean Bible Church in the Washington, D.C. metro area. The Radical Intensive is a great opportunity to learn how your church can reimagine the resources that you've been entrusted with for the sake of the lost and the unreached. You can connect with other like-minded church leaders. You can receive discipleship resources and ultimately gain a vision for how you and your church can get the gospel to the ends of the earth. The two days of the Radical Intensive are absolutely filled to the brim with content, breakouts, and resources that are critical to accomplishing this mission. So if you are a pastor or a senior leader in your church, would you consider joining us for the Radical Intensive September 27th and 28th this year in the Washington, D.C. metro area? You can learn all you need to know and register by visiting radicalintensive.com. Well, that's all for today's episode. I'm your host, Thomas Bowen. And until next time, join us at radical.net.